If you would, in your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. We are going to get into uh, this chapter today. After last Sunday, we had an introduction uh, to this letter and to the series. The title of the series is Following Jesus in a Fallen World. And so we are looking at the lives of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, here in the book of Daniel. If you do not have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to use the pew Bible that's in front of you. And our passage is found on page 737. People who stand out in a crowd, they do so because they look or act or both differently from everyone else. Maybe you've been in that situation. My wife and I, we certainly have been. Jamie and I, we did some foreign ministry work uh, right after I graduated from seminary. Um, I served as a staff member at a church across the border in the state of Louisiana. (laughs) And that is a foreign country, if you've ever been there. Maybe you're from there, God bless you. Wonderful people, wonderful food. But in April of 2003, our first Easter there, Uh, Some friends from the church who were chefs, cooks themselves, they invited us over for a crawfish uh, boil. And we had not been to one like that before, so we accepted. And so there were several of us there. And so just watching the whole process was interesting. And then it comes time to eat. And so we uh, give thanks to the Lord uh, for the food we're about to partake of. And then two guys, they reach into, if you've ever been to one, it's like this big old you know, pot. I don't know how many gallons of liquid it holds, but big old pot. And they just pick that pot up, and it drains out all the water, and then they just dump it on a table that had some newspaper on it. And I'm like, okay, all right. And waiting for utensils, you know, like a civilized person. And none came, and everyone just started reaching in and eating. And so my wife and I are like, oh, all right. So we grab a crawfish, and you probably know what they look like, and twist it apart. And I'm looking at this thing like, normally these are already peeled for me. And I'm peeling it, and there's this yellow fatty stuff, and I'm taking that out saying, ooh, that's gross. And, and then I eat it, and it took me like five minutes to get that little piece of meat. And so Jamie and I, that's how we're doing it this whole time. And everyone else around us are just like, choo, 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 choo. And we stood out because they were looking at us like, no, no, that's not how you do it. Here's how you do it. I'm like, I ain't doing it that way. I'm sorry. (laughs) Fun time, great friends. But standing out, it can be humorous at times, but most times it's not. Uh, You stand out in your class, uh, or you stand out at least maybe to your professor, as you have received a lower grade from your teacher because... In the paper that you wrote, uh, you defended a Christian belief or a Christian practice. And now that teacher, that professor knows exactly where you stand. And now you're standing out before him or her. It might be that there at school or even in your workplace that others quit talking when, uh, when you arrive because you don't laugh at the jokes that they share and laugh at or join in in the gossip of others that they are partaking of. Could be that when you go out on a business trip and you're with uh, fellow business people, 
that you spend your nights alone after meetings during the day because they're going to a place that you cannot go. It could be that you've been passed over for a job because you've said, I need Sundays off to be able to go and to worship God on the Lord's Day. As humans, we're communal people. We want to be parts of the crowd. We want to be parts of a group, of a family. But as Christians, we must remember, as we learned last Sunday, that the world that we live in, that it is a fallen world. And therefore, it is a world that is influenced by sin, ruled by sinners, the chief chief of whom is Satan himself. And there is constant pressure around us. There is constant pressure to conform, to assimilate. For my fellow Trekkies out there, you might hear the Borg saying, We are the Borg. You will be assimilated. Resistance is futile. If you're not a Trekkie, watch it. Well, that's what it feels like. Resistance is futile. You will conform to us. One of the authors of a commentary I'm using to go through the book of Daniel, he had this quote. He said, The hostility of the world is often shown in the efforts it makes to squeeze us into its mold. It wants to make us conform to its values and standards and not stick out from the crowd. We are expected to value the things uh, the, of the surrounding culture that the surrounding culture values to pursue passionately its glittering prizes and generally to live in obedience to its idols. We have to choose daily whether to be parts of this world in which we live or to take the difficult path of standing against it. And so, if we are not careful, if we are not watchful we will find ourselves being conformed to the image of this world, of its culture. And so in our text here this morning in Daniel chapter 1, we will witness how these four young men, teenagers even, how they resisted assimilation into their fallen world. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they determined from the very beginning of their time in Babylon. They determined to be young men who would remain faithful to the coming Messiah, who is Jesus, the Son of God. And by doing so, they were distinct from the fallen world around them. And that's what we're going to learn here this morning, that following Jesus in a fallen world makes one distinct from the world. If you're going to follow Jesus, just by the very fact of following after Him, your life will look different. It will be distinct from others around you. And so we're going to break this chapter down into its three parts. And we're going to see in verses 1 to 7 that followers of Jesus are distinct. 
because they are attentive to culture. They're attentive to culture. They're they're watching the things around them. And then verses 8 to 16, we'll see that followers of Jesus are distinct because they are convicted by culture. There's some things in culture that they just say to themselves, I cannot participate in that. And then lastly, we'll see in verses 17 to 21 that followers of Jesus are distinct because they are different from culture. They are different from culture. And so before we get into the Word of God, let us go to Him in prayer. Oh, Father, we come to You this morning. And God, we do praise You that You are such a good and faithful God. That You are our rock, You are our fulfillment fortress you are a shelter that will never be shaken and so God even when we live in a world that just seems so chaotic and so fallen God thank you that we have peace and security and comfort in you because of your son Jesus because we are in Jesus oh God we are in you thank you for that promise and God now as we come to your word Father, we look at these four young men and how they were looking to follow the coming Messiah. Oh God, let us learn from your word here this morning. As we are followers of that same Messiah who has already come, Jesus, our Savior and King. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. And so we begin here in verses 1 to 7. And here we do see that followers of Jesus are distinct because they are attentive to culture. And by attentive to culture, I mean that we are attentive to the ways of culture, the ways that, of culture that try to conform us to its image. This is something that as we resume our study uh, and series in the letter to the Romans uh, in September, but this is going to be several months off before we get here. But in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, uh, Paul, he says this to the, uh, to the church. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, and acceptable, and perfect. Well, there in Romans, there in Romans 12, but we see examples of this throughout the Scriptures. But culture is like a mold that constantly attempts to form our thinking, our convictions, and our actions according to its pattern. It's much like when children take a bucket to the, uh, to the ocean there on the sand. They take wet sand and, and they push that wet sand into that bucket and it's shaped like a, a castle top or whatever it may be. And that sand now is being conformed to the image of that bucket. That's much of what culture is attempting to do to us. To stuff us into its bucket. To make us like it. And so if we are not actively attentive to this act of culture, then we will be conformed to it. Because according to Romans 12, 2 that I just read, we are either being conformed by the world 
or we are being transformed by the Word. It's one of the two. It's never, well, I'm just going to be in the middle. I won't be conformed to the world, but I'm not going to be transformed by the Word. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. It's one or the other. And this is nothing new in our American 21st century. It was true, as we have heard Paul in his Roman first century. And it was also true for Daniel in the 6th century B.C. in Babylon. And so let's just look here real quick at these opening verses, verses 1 to 7. We covered some of these already last Sunday, but just by way of reminder. We see there in verses 1 to 2, a pagan nation. And the year and when this opens up, when it says in verse 1, it says, In the year, or the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And again, as we learned last Sunday, the year is 605 B.C., And God gives King Jehoiakim, he's king of Judah, and he gives King Jehoiakim into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the reason that God did this was because of the nation of Judah's sins. For centuries they have been rebelling against God. There would be times of of renewal, there would be times of revival that the Lord brought, but ultimately the people of the land of Judah, God's own people, would rebel against him. And specifically, as we saw last Sunday with King Hezekiah, there in 2 Kings chapter 20, how Hezekiah, and he was a good king. I hope I didn't leave the impression last Sunday that Hezekiah was somehow a bad man. For his reign, from the very beginning, it says that he did what was right in the eyes of God. And he did live a good life as a king. He was not a perfect man, though. And towards the end of his reign, he became prideful. Prideful with all the things that the Lord had done for him. And because of that pride, God says, I'm going to bring judgment upon the land and upon your descendants. And so a hundred years later, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes up against Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't win because he's such a strong and mighty king. He certainly was, but God enabled him to be a strong and mighty king. And he defeated the people of Jerusalem, took away some of the items there in the temple of God, that were used in worship of him, and Nebuchadnezzar took those items and brought them to the house of his pagan god. So we see there in verses 3 to 4, a pagan capital. That wasn't just these items from Jerusalem or from the temple that were brought to Babylon, but we're told there in verse 3, it says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths with, without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's place, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So Nebuchadnezzar just doesn't take inanimate objects, but he takes boys and girls, takes them, rips them from their families, to bring them to his nation, to his capital, going from the capital of Jerusalem to the capital of Babylon. And an unknown number of young people were taken that day. 
And they were descendants of the royal family, so thank King Hezekiah. After a hundred years of his children having children and so on and so forth, they are the descendants of Hezekiah. And God is fulfilling what he had said to Hezekiah, that your own descendants will be taken to Babylon. But also it was just some of the children of, of the royal people in Jerusalem, those that were wealthy and, and had influence. These were the ones who were taken and notice here that they said that they're being described as nice-looking, without blemish. And that they were intelligent, able to learn. These are the people that are taken. Taken now to a pagan capital. And then we see in verses 5 to 6, then, that they are given a pagan identity. Look there at those two verses, starting in verse 5. It says, the king assigned them a daily portion, that is, all these exiles from Jerusalem that are now in Babylon. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belt, Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now notice what's going on here. These young people, now that they are, they've left the capital city of their country, brought to a pagan capital of the Chaldeans in Babylon, they are now being supplied with all the, the pleasures of Babylonian society. Now certainly these are exiles. We could say that they were even slaves there in Babylon, but they weren't being treated in such a way. Now we can imagine that their life for them was fairly good, and the things that were being provided to them, food, shelter, clothing. And not just of the average citizen of Babylon, but what came from the king himself. So even of this food that they were given to eat, probably some of the most choicest food that you could eat was being given to them. They were being educated in the knowledge of Babylonian society. They were being brought and they were to be intelligent because they were to learn. They're now going to have to learn a foreign language uh, that they had not known before. And they were going to now learn new literature. They were going to learn a new history. They were going to learn mathematics and science, according to the Babylonians, and even astrology itself. For as we continue on in the book of Daniel... We know that there were astrologers, sorcerers, magicians even sometimes they're called, who would study the stars and then try to predict things that came from it. But this was an educated society. And now these young people are going to be educated within the culture, society of Babylon. So they've been supplied with the pleasures of Babylonian society. They've been educated in the, in the knowledge of Babylonian society. But also we see here that they're given new names of Babylonian society. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
probably of the three friends of Daniel, those names, their actual names, are names that we don't always speak of them by. Because we know them more by their given names there in Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you're a VeggieTales fan, uh, Rakshak and Benny. Um, if you don't know it, don't watch it. It's probably not that good. But these four men, they were given names by their parents. And each of these four men's names reflected back on the true God of Israel, the, the true God, the only God, the creator of heaven and earth. And their names, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, just by even speaking their names and hearing their names, it was to remind them of the true God. But now they're given new names. And the new names that they are given are names that are derivative from the pagan gods of the Babylonians. They were trying to erase their identity for who they were and are, to make them associate with the pagan gods of the society of Babylon. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he knew what he was doing here. He knew the power of culture to conform people into its ways. For you see, the end goal of Nebuchadnezzar was to re-educate these young people, these young Jewish boys, these young Jewish men, into the culture of Babylon. And these young men would have been vulnerable to the teaching of Babylon. I mean, they are now far from home. They're far from family, and they have no support from them. And they may have thought, at least some of the other uh, uh, young people that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, some of these other young people may have been thinking to themselves that God has abandoned us. And therefore, there's no hope. When you feel like there's no support and when you feel like there is no hope, you become susceptible to the culture around you. It may have been Nebuchadnezzar's design that if these young Jews would ultimately adopt Babylonian culture, well, then they could then be used to persuade other Jews to do the same. For some of these people could go out and speak to other Jews who are remaining devout to the faith and say, hey, you know what? I'm Jewish myself. I don't really deny anything that, uh, in, the, in the Torah, in the Scriptures. Man, there's a bigger world out there. Let me teach you some of the things that I learned in Babylon. Let me tell you what they taught me in school. And then some of the other of their fellow Jews may have been persuaded to false beliefs, false teaching, and false gods. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar knew what he was doing. And the strategy of Nebuchadnezzar 2,600 years ago is still an effective strategy to this day. As followers of Jesus, we must be attentive to the culture in which we live. The reason is that nothing in culture is neutral. I want you to hear that again. Nothing in culture is neutral. Now, some things in culture are good, and therefore they will lead to good. But then other things in culture, well, they're bad, 
And they're going to only lead to what is bad. And this world, and therefore the systems of this world, are ultimately under the reign and rule of sin and Satan himself. This strategy of Nebuchadnezzar is really the strategy of Satan every day. To conform us to the pressures of this world, to the systems of this world. Trying to make it look, oh, it's really not that bad. And to lure people away. So we must be attentive. I just have three examples here for us. We need to be attentive to education. We need to be attentive to entertainment and even attentive to what our government does. Now, our education, it forms our beliefs. And before I begin talking about education and what it can do, let me just begin by saying that, that our school district here in Canyon is probably one of the best districts throughout the nation. I don't have any, any empirical evidence for that. I don't go out and study everything else. But we have a very good district. We do not have the issues that other districts have that we witness sometimes on the news, and we should praise God for that. And again, our district, it's not perfect, but I will take it over just about any other district there is. And I praise God that we have Christian educators and that we have Christian administrators serving in our district, serving in our schools. Men and women who follow Jesus. And they know that they are distinct from other teachers and administrators around them because of that. But they follow Jesus faithfully. We have several of them in our own church family. And so just to be reminded, we need to pray for them, especially as, as school is about to get going. I know students, especially teachers, you don't want to hear that, but it's coming. Summer has felt like it goes by fast, but it's only every day has 24 hours in it. It's the same time as every other time, but it's coming. And so let's pray as a church family. Let's pray for our Christian educators, for our Christian administrators. They would continue to follow Jesus in their workplace. So I praise God for that. And so with that said, we need to understand why so many social issues, though, are brought into schools. Again, as we see these things on the, in the news broadcasts. And I believe it is because in the schools, children, they are vulnerable. They are vulnerable to the teaching that they receive. How many times have you spoken to your child um, and you've said something to your child and then your child replies back, not like being arrogant or, or defiant or anything, but they'll reply back, well, my teacher says, and fill in the blank. And this is true in the university. Children go off to university, come back home for the summer, talking to their parents, and parents may say something, well, my professor says. You see, people will naturally think that because someone is a teacher, a professor, that he or she must always be in the right. They're the knowledgeable ones. I need to listen to them. And so students here this morning, whether you're in grade school, junior high, high school, 
and even in the university. Students here this morning, let me say this. Respect your teachers. Respect your professors. They do have a a level of, uh, of authority over you because of the position they have and because you're there at school. You need to respect them. Treat them with respect. Treat them with kindness. But with that said, do not surrender to them. Just because they're your teacher, just because they're your professor, that does not mean that everything they speak is true. And so when they teach what is right and good and in accordance with truth, then yes, listen to them. This is the common grace of God. Even though we as people were were fallen and those who are not in Christ, even though their minds and their their wills are uh, consumed with sin, God has still given reason to men and women. We're able to look at the world, to study the world around us. And that's good. Many times they will speak what is in accordance with truth. Again, when that happens, listen. Listen to them. But when they teach what is wrong and what is false and contrary to God's word, well, then you need to disregard them. Still showing respect, but to disregard them. Because knowingly or not, that system of teaching is trying to conform people's minds to look at the world around them and say, the world is all that there is. The world came about, well, the big bang, the big whatever, call it what you want, but there is nothing outside of physical creation You're just an animal like other animals here on this planet. You live, you die, you're gone. This is the common worldview of the education system. So we need to recognize it is a system that can conform our minds, trying to make us to think the things that are wrong and false. So be attentive. To parents here this morning, let me just say, be informed about what, you're, what is taught to your children. When you see something taught as true, or excuse me, that is not true, but is actually false. For instance, if they're in science and there's evolution being taught, then instruct your child in the truth. To say, well, yes, this is what the scientists think and this is what they say, but it's false. Here's what the Word of God says. Instruct them in that. Lead them into into good knowledge and good books that will teach them more about how God created this world. But you don't need to go up and storm the school with your protest and have the signs in your hand and and do all that stuff. Just give your time and your energy to your children. So when they go off to school the next day or the next semester, they are grounded in the truth. And they can hear what is false and know exactly what it is. That's false. I will stand upon the truth. But it's not just our education system, it's also the entertainment. Our entertainment, it shapes our morals. The most subtle way that certain sins become acceptable in our culture is via entertainment. When we find entertainment in watching sin, then it shapes what we think is actually sin. I don't know if we've ever thought about that before. But when we see something on the little screen, uh, TVs that is, you may have a big screen, I don't know, but 
small screen and then big screen the movies. And you're watching it and being entertained by something. When that something is sin, it begins to shape the way that we think about that sin. I don't know if you've ever been watching a, a, a program, a movie, and during the movie you find yourself rooting for, maybe it's not the antagonist in the movie. Maybe this person, he or she, is supposed to be the protagonist, but the protagonist really isn't that great of a person. His or her character is really poor. They're trying to steal from other people. They're trying to take someone else's spouse as their own. And yet we're watching it and we're rooting for them, say, ah, oh, true love needs to win out here. Or the money that you're stealing from this other person, well, they're bad people anyway. Take it from them. Go get it. I hope you win. And then you sit back for a moment and you're like, what am I doing? You're a bad person. I'm not to be rooting for you. But in this entertainment... It's shaping our morals. We begin to think, well, some stealing is wrong, but some stealing is acceptable. Some adultery is wrong, but some is acceptable. Some blaspheming is wrong, but there might be times it's kind of funny and it's okay. This is our entertainment. Now, let me just say, I'm not going to be the music, movie, TV show police. Jamie hates watching shows with me anyway, because I always critique it and say snarky comments. That's how I enjoy programs, not how everyone else does. But I'm not going to be the police and say, here's what you can't watch and what you can watch. Certainly some things we would just all say, yeah, that, that's a bridge too far. But I'm just saying that we need to be aware of how entertainment is shaping us, even as followers of Jesus. What is what I am watching? What is it telling me? What is the worldview behind this? And am I subtly starting to adopt it as my own? And then lastly, even with our government, our government persuades our actions. And our government... It is filled with sinners. I don't care what party you vote for, belong to, or whatever. It's filled with sinners. And it is ruled by sin. And therefore, our government will attempt to persuade the actions of people that is contrary to truth. Because they are fallen and they are dead in their sin. doesn't mean everything that they say or do and laws that are passed are wrong. We want laws for a good society. That worldview of theirs, that fallen worldview of of theirs will come out at times. One state in our our nation has attempted to pass a law that would make it a crime to misgender a person. So if they say, here's my pronouns and you must call me by this, then this state is trying to make it, it hasn't passed yet, I don't think it's going to, but... It was put before their state legislature anyway. But to make it a crime, to misgender a person. If this person is a woman and she wants to be called by a masculine pronouns. Now, some people in our culture say, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. You're just using a pronoun. So just do it. Law says you have to. 
but for believers who know the truth and the Word of God, we can't go around and call someone what they are not. God has created man, male and female. Male and female, He created them. There is no crossover between the two. There's no fluidity between the two, going back and forth between the two. God has created you, each person, good, with your body, with your gender. And this is a good thing that brings glory to God. And so we need to be on the lookout for our government. So we do not give in to some of these maybe subtle laws to say, well, I guess this is okay. No, we need to be reminded of what Paul wrote to Timothy about. He said, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Well, it's easy to become angry at anyone in government. Praise God, we have followers of Jesus in government and And it is good for followers of Jesus to be involved in the process, to be involved in governing. And we need to pray for them, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to pray for our government so that we as followers of Jesus can live that life, as Paul says here, to live that peaceful and quiet life. Oh, this is the culture that we live in. It's always trying to shape us and deform us. We must be attentive. But then secondly, in verses 8 to 16, we see that followers of Jesus are distinct because they are convicted by culture. They are convicted by culture. And here we see probably what is most well known in this chapter. It says there in verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And so Daniel, as we'll learn as you read a little bit further down in verse 11, we see that Daniel and and his three friends, that they determined it best. They determined it best to not eat the meat nor drink the wine provided by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the question might become, well, well, why is that? Daniel says here that he doesn't want to defile himself with the wine, with the meats. So the question becomes, well, How would they have been defiled by eating meat and drinking this wine? Well, some have said, well, maybe the food was sacrificed or offered up in worship uh, to one of the pagan gods of Babylon. Um, The the food, the wine, and it was offered up first. In fact, one of the things I read this week is that uh, one of the practices that they would do in Chaldean society is that they would take the food uh, that the king was going to eat. And I guess stretch it out on a table, everyone would leave the room and say, all right, uh, false god, uh, uh, Marduk, as we learned from last Sunday, was one of these false gods. All right, Marduk, if you're hungry, here's you some food. And then they would wait a little while and uh, enter into the room, and then the king got to eat what was, what was left over. And this one commentator said, the king never went without food. Um, there was no god coming down and eating this food. But at least was offered up in worship to this God. And so maybe that's the reason why Daniel and his three friends would not eat the meat or drink the wine. But then the question becomes, 
But wouldn't the vegetables? I mean, it wasn't just meat and wine offered up. It was the whole food, the whole table. Here you go, eat, Marduk. And so if the vegetables were offered up, why was that okay for Daniel and the three friends to eat? Some have said that maybe the food was not kosher. That is, it wasn't in accordance with Jewish dietary laws. But the problem with that is, after three years, after this three-year period is up, that Daniel, at least we know of Daniel, that Daniel ate the meat and drank the wine. Because when you get to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel here is an older man at this point, probably around 80 years old. And it says there in verses 2 to 3 that Daniel fasted from meat and from wine for a period of three weeks in order that he might pray. Meaning he was eating and drinking before he prayed. He gave it up for three weeks and then he resumed it after he was done. Well, if it wasn't kosher in Daniel chapter 1, why was it kosher in Daniel chapter 10? I think that for whatever reason, Daniel and the three friends, they just thought it wrong for them. They thought it wrong for them to partake of the meat and the wine for a period of time. It very well may have been that by fasting, if you will, from this meat and from this wine, that it was a way to remind them of who they are dependent upon. We're not dependent upon King Nebuchadnezzar. We are dependent upon God. That very well may have been their mindset. So therefore, to have eaten the meat and drank the wine, for them it would have been a way of saying we're dependent upon the king. So this was really more a matter of conscience for them than it was a command of God. I think of Romans chapter 14, verse 23, where Paul says, But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And there Paul is dealing with some of the Christians who didn't want to eat meat because it had possibly been offered in worship to a pagan god. And so Paul is, when we get to Romans chapter 14, Lord willing, someday, we will see that for some of these Christians, they're like, I just can't eat it. But for some of the other Christians, they're like, hey, they're having a sale at the marketplace I'm going to go buy some hamburger and we're cooking out tonight. But for those whose faith their conscience wouldn't allow them to, Paul says, then don't. It might be okay for some of the other Christians to go do it. But if it's not for you, then don't. I think that's how it was for Daniel and his three friends. And we see here, I won't read all of these verses, but going from verse 9 to 16, we see that God gave favor to Daniel and his three friends. This chief eunuch that Daniel talks to says, hey, well, I don't want to eat the meats or drink the wine, this eunuch. It says right there from the very beginning, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So this man that was in charge of all these young people that have been uh, exported uh, from Jerusalem, he is overseeing them in charge of their health and well-being. And this guy's like, I don't know if I can do that. If I take this away and it turns out that you're kind of scrawny after three years, guess who's going to be put to death? Probably you, but also me. But then Daniel, he talks to this guy that's probably in charge of their group. It says, hey, don't give us the meat, don't give us the wine. 
Just give us vegetables, and I hope it didn't include Brussels sprouts, but vegetables. <laughs> give us vegetables and water. That's all. That's all. And this guy, again, he's like, I don't know about that. I could get in trouble. And Daniel says, all right, for a period of 10 days. After 10 days, look at me and my friends and uh, just kind of look at us, evaluate us. Do we look healthy or not? And so this guy agrees and gives them vegetables and water for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, this man looked at them, inspected them and said, you look better than everyone else. And so we learn there in verse 16, it says, So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now just know that right there in that verse 16, this didn't mean for everyone else. This was just for Daniel and for his three friends. This is all that they're going to get for a period of three years. So God shows favor to Daniel and to his three friends because of their conviction of conscience. Now, Daniel and his three friends noticed that they did not stage a big protest against the dietary menu that was offered them. They didn't form a Facebook group to gather others with them to demand that all people be fed only vegetables and water. They didn't shame the other Jews that were with them and saying, how dare you eat that meat and drink that wine? Look at us. Look how godly we are for what we're doing. No, they just simply determined for themselves that eating meat and drinking wine that came from the king for that period of time was wrong for them. And so as Christians today, as Christians today, we're going to differ on what we think is right and wrong for Christians to participate in. Things that you can do or can't do. What I think is wrong for me may not be wrong for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But praise God for this, the standard of what is wrong and right is not what personally offends me. And praise God, it's not what personally offends you either. No, the standard for what is right and wrong is only the Word of God. And so where God's Word clearly commands something, then all Christians must follow it without question. There is no debate about it. God says, do it, we do it. If He says, don't do it, we don't do it. As has been said, the ten, they're called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. But we may differ from time to time on applications. For instance, some may think it wrong to participate in employment or entertainment or sports on the Lord's Day. Others may think that as long as your employment and as long as entertainment and sports do not interfere with your attending church, with your church family, then it's okay. I had a dear friend at a church I served at previously, and on Sundays, he and his family would not go out to eat after church. He just felt it wrong to uh, cause others to have to work on the Lord's Day, so they would eat at home. And he didn't hold that for everyone else. He says, this is what's for me and my family. And I, uh, I supported him in his decision, and then I would go off to the local Mexican food restaurant and eat with others. 
Some may think that certain businesses should be boycotted because of their support of immoral practices. And others may think that it is acceptable to do business with such places because, well, that doesn't mean that I accept that immorality. I, 23 years ago, boycotted Home Depot. It wasn't for anything immoral, but their driver, Tony Stewart, took out my driver, Jeff Gordon, on pit row. It made me really angry. I said, I'm not shopping at Home Depot. Now, I lived in an apartment. I really didn't have any reason to shop at Home Depot. And Home Depot still stands today. Oh, well. But see, this is just a matter of our conscience. And as Christians, we're going to have a conscience. We're going to say, there's just some things... I can't do. And that is okay. In fact, if you look with me real quick at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Here the apostle again as he's writing to these uh, probably primarily Jewish Christians, encouraging them, exhorting them to endure. He says, therefore, in verse 1, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring to to the men and women in chapter 11. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, right there in verse 1, he says, if you're going to run with endurance, there's two things that you need to remove from you. Certainly one of those, as he says there, is sin. That sin that clings so closely. As we've been going through Romans, it's that, it's that sinful nature that's still within us. Our, our old man is dead, but that sinful nature still just beckons us. But notice what also he says there that we need to lay aside. He says, every Weight. Now that every weight, from what I can understand here in what the apostle is saying, is that there's just some things in life that's going to slow you down in the Christian life. It may not be sinful, because I think he talks about sin right after that. It's just something that's going to slow you down. It may not slow down someone else, but it's going to slow you down. And he says those are the things that you need to, to get rid of. This is your conscience. This is your conscience in, in following after Jesus for you to say, for me, uh, for me and my family, here's what we think is best. God's word says this, we follow it. And when it comes to something that it doesn't specifically say what to do or not do, here's what we say is best. And that's what we follow. And so as followers of Jesus in a fallen world, we'll have to navigate our way carefully. God's commands, they're they're universally ultimate. Again, please hear me. God's word says it, do it. If you don't, you're sinning. But our conscience is personally subordinate. What do I need to do? As a follower of Jesus in my school, in my workplace, in my home, in my society, in in my town of Canyon, how am I going to navigate a path that's going to faithfully honor Jesus. And by doing that, brothers and sisters in Christ, you will be distinct from those around you. Your friends will be saying, hey, let's go see this movie. 
popular movie of the day, and you're like, well, I can't. Well, why not? Well, there's a scene in there that I've heard about that it's just not good. How oh, it's just one scene. No, I don't want to see that. These are the things that are going to make us distinct as followers of Jesus. Lastly, verses 17 to 21. Followers of Jesus are distinct because they are different from culture. Let me just summarize what's going on here. The three years have passed. And so for three years, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they've been uh, eating vegetables, drinking water. Uh, They have been instructed in in the education of of Babylon. They've been instructed in the language of, of the Babylonians. And now they're being brought and presented to the king. What this looks like, we're not really for sure, but they're being now uh, escorted, uh, uh, paraded before the king. Maybe all of them together in small groups. But the king and possibly some of his advisors around him now are questioning these young people after three years. What have they learned? How do you look? And we're told at the end of those three years, as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they stood before the king, They were found to be better than everyone else. This was God's favor upon them. That's really a theme of this book. God favoring His people to show His power and might. And we're told then, in verse 19 it says, And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, meaning that they were now elevated in positions. We're going to see this play out later in the book. So things are turning out good right now for Daniel and his friends. And then we're told in verse 20, it says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, meaning about 70 years will elapse. Chapter 1 ends on a good note. Daniel, his friends, they've been distinct in what they have done. They looked at the culture around them. They said, we just can't do certain things. Our conscience says, we can't do this. And God gave them favor, and they refrained from those things. And then God showed them favor by causing King Nebuchadnezzar to look to them and, and to see how good they were, how smart they were. God had given them the wisdom. And then he elevates them in a position. And things were good. But that's not always going to be the case. Not every time you live distinctly for Jesus in your fallen world, in your fallen school, in your fallen workplace, in your fallen town, is it always going to turn out this way? Especially when we look at chapters 3 and 6, probably some of the most well-known chapters in the book. But brothers and sisters in Christ, following Jesus, it's going to make us distinct. King Nebuchadnezzar looked at these young men and saw something different. And as we faithfully follow Jesus day in and day out, our world is going to see something different about us. And there may be times that it turns out really good for us. That your employer says, man, you're someone I can trust. You're actually a hard worker uh, here in the workplace. You're not, uh, you're not slothful. You're not on social media. You're not whatever. But you're actually doing the work. And you get promoted. Get a raise. And we think to ourselves, that's awesome. 
I'm going to keep following Jesus. But then there's going to be other times where your employer might be like, hey, quit the talk of Jesus, all right? Just do your job. And it's in those times, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we need to be reminded of what I read earlier in our service, and I close with this passage. From Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 12 to 14. To remind us of what it will be like for those who follow Jesus in a fallen world as we are living a life that is distinct from the world around us. It says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let us pray. Oh God, how we praise you that you had men and women throughout every generation who were faithful to you. And God, this is thanks to you because this is your work within them. And we have seen that in the life of Daniel and his three friends. God, I do pray that you would remind us that what we read up here in the text, this isn't just something that happened. This isn't just a a good story from 2,600 years ago. But God, what Daniel and his friends faced or what we face even today. So God, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of our culture. That you would even show us the ways in which we are being conformed according to the pattern of this culture in ways that we have not yet seen before or We do know, and yet, God, we have not confessed that and repented of it. Oh, God, today, let us let go of the things of this world and have our minds transformed only by your truth. So we might be men and women who go out into our schools and workplaces and be a light for Christ to bear witness to the truth. Father, help us to always be living in accordance with the conscience that you have given to us. Uh, For those things that are wrong for us to do, that we just feel it's, it's something we should not do, God, give us just courage in that. Support from our brothers and sisters in Christ in that. God, to do it for your glory alone. And God, thank you that there's times that we do just experience your favor in this world. Because we're followers of Jesus, God, good things do come. But God, let us not hang on to those gifts as if we deserved them or as if they were to last forever. But Father, even when the world turns against us for being followers of Jesus, God, let us continue to go to Jesus outside the gate and to bear the reproach that He bared. Because this is not our city, this is not our home but we await our Savior. So God, thank you that you are sovereign over all things. The good in our lives, the bad in our lives, you're sovereign over it all, and everything you do is always good. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.